What's up, everyone? Summer is here, and I hope you're all finding time to enjoy the extra sunlight and warm temperatures. Although it's summer, the Web3 community has called the start of another crypto winter, where cryptocurrency prices are less than 50% their all-time highs. The crypto market volatility seems to be somewhat correlated to the overall global market sentiment, which is not that great, in large part due to the war in Ukraine and high inflation rates. Thankfully, we've seen these cycles before, and the rate of blockchain development continues to increase in various sectors, including healthcare. It's interesting to observe how investors and entrepreneurs behave during uncertain times. Investors need to decide if this is a good time to invest their money in risky projects when overall market conditions look bleak. Entrepreneurs struggle to find customers and investors since many of them are playing the wait-and-see game. Overall, building platforms and products during crypto winters can be productive for teams since there are less shiny distractions and less hype in the markets. On episode 96 of the Health Unchained podcast, I speak with Jordan Woods and Redhika Iyengar, co-founders of Silicon Valley-based StarChain Ventures. Combined, this duo has so much experience in technology investing and building companies. For years, they have spoken about the impact of blockchain in society and in enterprise companies. They have written a book together called Enterprise Blockchain Has Arrived, Real Deployments, Real Value, which gives an overview of how Web3 will eventually mitigate the inherent risks and inefficiencies of Web2 across all different sectors, including fintech, healthcare, energy, and public governance. I really enjoy my conversation with Jordan and Radhika, and I hope you do too. Remember, the Health Unchained podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only, and we are not providing any sort of legal, financial, or medical advice. Please do your own research and due diligence before making any important decisions related to these matters. And now, let's get to the show. Hi, I'm your host, Ray Dogan, and welcome to Health Unchained. On this show, I'll be speaking with healthcare entrepreneurs, thought leaders, and executives who are using blockchain technologies to revolutionize healthcare. These innovators are building the distributed infrastructure and diverse communities required for a trusted, secure, and decentralized healthcare ecosystem. Enjoy the show. What is blockchain? blockchain. What is blockchain? The doctor will see you now. Welcome to Health Unchained. Today I'm joined by two guests who work closely together on a number of different ventures, Jordan Woods and Radhika Iyengar. They are co-authors of the book Enterprise Blockchain Has Arrived, Real Deployments, Real Value, which was published in 2019. They are also co-founders of StarChain Ventures and are very active in the Silicon Valley investor community. Jordan, Radhika, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you? Sure. I'm fine, Ray. Great to be on the show. Hey, Ray. Happy to have you. And maybe we can start with some like brief introductions. Jordan, maybe you can go first. Just describe your career, your experience, and then how you fell into the blockchain world in healthcare. Sure. I was originally trained to be uh, an astrophysicist, and so pretty technical in terms of my direction. And then I kind of moved from working in academia to private sector and very quickly realized that I wanted to be an entrepreneur and uh, started a company. And that company led me to Silicon Valley and ended up raising about 50 million for my first company during the dot-com era, 
and kind of got introduced venture capital, Silicon Valley way of growing companies, and really kind of fell in love with the whole entrepreneurial experience and growing and scaling companies, and have been very active as a serial entrepreneur, and also very focused on the bigger ecosystem, the entrepreneurial community, not just here in Silicon Valley, but also globally. And as part of that uh, journey, I've been very focused on the cutting edge, so cutting edge throughout. And so my first company was kind of enterprise B2B and had a couple exits out of that. And then my second company was very much focused on the what we now call the metaverse space. It was a very early, like 20 years ago, version of the metaverse. And it was also decentralized. So I kind of got into decentralized tech about eight or nine years before Bitcoin. And so really saw that as the future. Obviously, it didn't happen. It's kind of an interlude through all this massive centralization. But when I saw it uh, pop back on the radar in 2016, 2017, I was like, okay, <laughs> it's back. It's happening. Obviously, we've all been a little bit early <laughs> in the journey. But again, because I had been mostly on the enterprise side, came in in our book, it's called Enterprise Blockchain, has arrived. But we also, in the book, even though it's called Enterprise Blockchain, it's very much about Web3. And so the first line is, you know, of the book is we are entering the Web3 era and, and Web2 is over <laughs> and we're moving. And then the rest of the book just kind of talks about Web3. So we saw Web3 coming. We really were very focused on this transformation. And I haven't looked back. I've just been, you know, all in and looking forward to the discussion about what we think and, and what we have been very focused on in, in the Web3 space. Awesome. Thanks for sharing that, Jordan. Sure. And Radhika? I'm Radhika Iyengar, and obviously you've introduced me as co-founder at Star Chain Ventures with Jordan, and I've got my own story to tell, I suppose. Uh, for one thing, I'm not from this country originally. I'm originally from India, but I grew up in North Africa and Morocco and came to the United States as a very young freshman and did my all of my higher education by way of full scholarships here in the United States. And, you know, my arc into healthcare actually started as early as my undergrad days when I was a pre-med. However, I realized through that trajectory that the clinical side of healthcare really wasn't meant for me. So I veered away from the pre-med pursuit and I ended up in business and in tech. Uh, the first place I started working at was a semiconductor company in Southern California and have spent pretty much all of my career in emerging technologies, cutting edge, I guess, technology. And so what better place to pursue that than Silicon Valley, since it is really all about advanced technologies, emerging technologies, developing things that transform people's lives. I guess that's how I look at it. My journey into entrepreneurship really stems from the fact that I guess I see myself as a person that if I don't see it, I go build it. And that's a very entrepreneur DNA kind of perspective and lens. But I also realize that the investment side is incredibly important. And so over the last 10 years or so nearly that Jordan and I have been teamed up working together as a team, we've basically built ecosystems, not only here, but also elsewhere around the world knowing that the two sides are incredibly important to generate the kind of momentum that you have to see that, you know, really helps startups thrive. And so we've very much been on that ecosystem building side of things. 
during that same same time in the last 10 plus years, I've also been very active into the digital health side of the equation. In fact, when digital health came onto the scene, I remember thinking, aha, now I can get back into health. I never lost the passion for that sector. It is about people's lives. I, I really still believe in that. But now I can come at it through the tech side. And so I was, have been very, very integrally involved with the digital health side of things. And then enter blockchain about maybe five years ago, mostly on the crypto side. I could see that the far-reaching implications of this technology in combination with other advanced technologies is really where I think the excitement in healthcare is at. And so I'm very much on the personalized medicine and personalized healthcare side of the equation because we finally have to get it right that we are not all one size and we cannot have a one size fits all type of healthcare. But along the way, because of my own unique perspectives from a global perspective, it is also making sure that healthcare is equitable. Health equity is one of the big things that we really have to prioritize globally because what exists today is anything but that. And it's all about health inequity. And so I think making sure that we have access to foundational, to fundamental rights in healthcare, I think is something that really drives me in this field and the future of what I see possible via blockchain and advanced technologies, developing impactful solutions that bring health equities around the world is something that is really worth fighting for. That's a really good point. And we can get back to the health equity conversation because I think it's pertinent and we're seeing massive inequity globally. It's not getting better. It's sort of getting worse in many ways. So definitely we can hope that technology can fix this, but it's not just technology as we all know. It's technology and the people and the processes that uh, enable that. So yes, I thank you for sharing that, both of you. I kind of want to understand when you started writing your book, who was your intended audience? And then who was the audience that ended up reading the book and promoting it? And, and then have you learned anything or seen any surprising trends after the fact? It's been, what, three years after. So there must have been some surprises, right? I'll just jump in there quickly. For, for one thing, as Jordan said, we were one of the first to call out Web3. I think there was no mistake about it. This is not some afterthought or footnote. This is very much central to our thesis is, is Web3 and decentralized technologies in general. But in terms of who we saw at the time as being really important in the adoption of technology, how it takes shape, how it takes root, and how it goes mainstream is via the enterprise. And so we wrote it, I think, with that lens of saying, much like the early internet, right? It, it was really enterprise that got involved and bolstered the use and the value of the internet and what you could do and the power of the internet. And it was really enterprise that got in and paved the way so that then we could have these incredibly powerful consumer applications that came on board right after. So I very much, we both very much see that that same kind of behavior, not exactly identical, but same kind of behavior is very much a part of this adoption curve as well. And that's what we have predicted. So I think we wrote the audience is really anybody. It really was meant to, to recognize that, first of all, it's written in a very easy to read manner. It's voluminous and comprehensive at that, but it is meant to be, there is something for a technologist, 
There is something for the entrepreneur. There is something for a business person working in enterprise. There is something for an investor who doesn't really have a feel for what this means and where the applications and use cases are. So it's written a little bit for all of those. And it, it, it's a very interesting perspective to present because at the end of the day, it's about the transformative power of this technology and, and what its far-reaching implications are across many different sectors. Yeah, I definitely agree with all of that, Radhika. And what I would add is that it is very much focused on the enterprise, obviously, and, and enterprise use cases, and we cover about 25 different use cases. But in many of those use cases, you have consumers, right? And you have just you and me, and especially in healthcare. <laughs> we have two chapters that are very focused on healthcare. And then we have other chapters, which are on supply chain and finance and even energy and government. But at the end of the day, for all of those, it's you and me that are interacting with everyone else on the planet with these different systems. And as we got into looking at all these different systems, we realized that they were having a lot of challenges, right? In all the systems that exist in Web2, everyone acts like they're bulletproof and, and they're all fine, but there's tremendous fraud in the systems. There's all kinds of vulnerabilities that, that we call out in, in chapter one, which are unfortunately swept under the rug. But then there's a lot of just massive inefficiencies. And obviously there's middlemen and you're seeing it with supply chains. They were very fragile, right? Before the pandemic, they continue. I mean, we wouldn't be suffering from supply chain and logistics problems today if they were quickly fixable, but they were really on the edge of not working. <laughs> and then with the pandemic and, and, and the aftermath of all the restrictions, they have really seen tremendous problems. And then obviously, you know, with the whole crypto revolution that's now also moving into the enterprise, there are a lot of inefficiencies in, in the financial and the banking world, especially in those that are unbanked. <laughs> right? There's close to 2 billion people that, that are unbanked. There's tremendous access issues with regards to medicine, and, and even those that are the wealthiest in the richest countries in the world don't really have personalized medicine. So there are fundamental problems across all areas of society. The technologies that we have in place, a lot of people like to say they're so wonderful, but when you look at them very closely, you realize that they can be massively improved from where they are. Uh, I might just say, and Radhika, please uh, follow up, but there were two large trends that happened 20, well, 2020 CBDCs became pretty, pretty large. We mentioned them in the book, but they kind of took us a little bit by surprise that they were so widely studied in terms of central bank digital currencies. And there were geopolitical issues for, for why, and it's not really the now to talk about those in, in this podcast, but that was one. Obviously, NFTs, <laughs> right? And the way they just captured everyone's imagination in so many different ways, both positive and negative, but became a thing. And the metaverse, right? Um, especially late last year with the rebranding of Facebook. So all of those we were ready for, but we weren't really, we didn't really discuss much in our book. Well, I, I agree with that. I think for me, the surprise is that we called Web3 out back in 2019. It's pretty early to, to call it out because most people weren't even talking about it. Maybe we're not even aware, aware of what that was. And then to see that Web3 is now one of the big buzzwords in Silicon Valley anyway, sure. Web3 this and that and the other, right? And so 
But what is carrying, I think, the flag is very much NFTs in the metaverse. And so I think that was uh, that's come at me, I think, with a big surprise because it's not like we didn't call it out. But I don't know that in 2019, we could have predicted that that was going to be the thing that would seed it in mainstream where everybody's talking about Web3 and is buzzing about Web3 and it's NFTs in the metaverse are that are really entering sort of mainstream consciousness, if you will, supporting that. So we were thinking very much, oh, it's going to be enterprise, it's going to be this, it's going to be that. And all of that actually has happened. In fact, our timeline is pretty spot on. And we call that out uh, in our book. We have a whole timeline of adoption for this, for this technology. And it's been, like I said, pretty spot on. But who could have ever imagined that the the thing that was going to drive Web3 mainstream was going to be NFTs in the metaverse? I think that we didn't quite expect that. Well, I think also just as a point on that, we didn't expect the pandemic. No, we didn't. <laughs> and and the pandemic obviously changed people's uh, I actually, understanding we of book, online. We, we missed our book tour because yeah, we were planning a whole world book tour uh, at the beginning at the beginning of 20, you know, 2020, because we, yeah. we published it in Q, Q4 of, of 20, uh, 20, 2019. Yeah. So yeah, we didn't see the pandemic coming. <laughs> yeah. And or think that it was going to necessarily last so long. I mean, we're still in it. It's, it's kind of winding down in a sense, but there are still obviously subvariants and a lot of people still getting COVID that, that I know in my network that are, are getting COVID today. So the it's obviously a lot milder. And so, you know, it's not as big of an impact, but it's still, you know, highly prevalent. So the the whole pandemic shifted people's focus to being isolated, being at home, needing remote services. And so all of that really changed. Like this concept of the of the metaverse is like it becomes something that was happening, right? During the pandemic is everybody was trying to figure out how do we have an, an experience that is going to be similar to our 3D physical experience, but we can actually do online. And I think the seeds were being laid there. Obviously, I was looking at it 20 years ago. And so the technologies have been resident and they could have happened at any time, but you needed people to want to embrace it, right? And, and so that was something that, that happened with the pandemic. Yeah. And we saw huge amount of health tech or digital mm-hmm. health investments yeah. in those years as well oh, like for massive sure. amounts and i'm sure Absolutely. you guys have been part of that at least to some degree telemedicine investment i think in 2021 <laughs> went up like over 100 percent. so like just doubling and there has been talks and this is my question there has been talks about health tech digital health bubble or there's so much investment is too hot are you seeing a slowdown in investments for digital health companies and ventures Thanks. I'll say that I'll, I'll, I'll attack that. And I, I think it's really, no, I mean, if anything, we've come through this pandemic, this incredibly surreal experience that we've all globally been a part of. And if anything, we've realized how fragile our lives are from a health perspective here today, gone anytime. So I think that, you know, all of the barriers to entry that we were Thinking about early days of digital health, people talking, at least in the US, talking, well, what's the reimbursement model? And how are you going to make money on this? Who's going to pay for this app or whatever it is you're, you're developing in digital health? And suddenly it was, how are you going to live? Right? How are you going to survive? And so I think that you know the shifts in thinking have really opened up a lot of opportunities for digital tools to actually have a rightful place 
in terms of how we can bring greater accessibility, amplify point of care in the healthcare experience through telemedicine, telehealth, and digital therapeutics, for example. I mean, there are lots of different areas that have just seen a massive explosion, if you will, of opportunity. I don't see that going away. I do see an opportunity to build on that. And this is kind of central to our conversation today in terms of how does blockchain play an increasingly important role in amplifying this reach for healthcare? How do we improve point of care? How do we make it more personal? How do we make it more individualized and tailored to who we are as individuals, right? So that's that's something I do see happening. So from an investment standpoint, I don't see any of the, I don't see any contraction. Obviously, since we're in a market cycle that is down at the moment, uh, that affects all sectors, but it's a different kind of contraction. This is not about contraction of opportunity. It does move the goalposts from an investment perspective, what gets funded, what metrics you have to have to get to get funded, et cetera. But it's not about contraction of actual opportunities in the sector. Yeah. And, and what I'll say is we were actually spinning up in our venture studio, uh, a healthcare, yeah. digital health, blockchain focused company in late 2019, early 2020, kind of moving forward with our thesis of this was the future and, and, and coming came up with that whole model. What happened, though, is that because there was such a strong shift to the pandemic and just dealing with the fallout from the pandemic, I think a lot of ideas like the one that we had, we had to put on hold. We didn't stop it. We're like, this is still necessary, right? Whatever you know, <laughs> we, we were still wanting to do it, right? But the the whole focus was, like Radhika said, how do we survive this pandemic? How do we deal with public health disaster that was unfolding in early 2020? And we just knew that there wasn't going to be any mind share for something that wasn't focused on that. So most of the healthcare focused digital health companies that did amazingly well were in sectors like telemedicine, telehealth, all these types of things, which could immediately just explode, <laughs> right? And because and, and then the, the laws were modified or relaxed to enable cross-border I know. and kinds of things that you know, people had been predicting might happen in five or 10 years, happened in a few weeks, right? And so, but there were a lot of digital health companies like the one that we were spinning up that just had to get iced. So there's a tremendous opportunity for, as we move past the pandemic and into a more standard kind of interaction between people, that there will be a lot of digital health companies that will now have the opportunity to flourish. Like Radhika mentioned, we're kind of moving into a recession type of experience from the markets, and, and then that's radiating back into venture, and it's going to make the amount of venture capital that's going into companies, you know, it's going to come down, and it's going to go later stage, it's going to be more risk averse, because that's what happens in these cycles. But again, that's not health specific and, and the opportunity for healthcare and blockchain and AI and all the you know deep tech technologies is just starting. <laughs> it's, it has a yeah. long way to go. It, it is still very early. I think that yeah. we can all admit that sure blockchain, there's a lot of utility and possibilities. Most of those possibilities are still visions and we still have to get the right, like you said, build them, make sure the product, the user experience is 
basically flawless because that's what people expect now. And then once we're able to do that, we can provide those promises of data ownership, better data security and access. Exactly. I, I'll also add that, you know, what's what was interesting in an interesting sort of way, the things that were suddenly possible overnight in healthcare, you know, re- all the regulatory frictions sort of removed because we needed telehealth, we needed telemedicine. We also saw an opportunity that came about that suddenly there were use cases using blockchain, for example, for verified credentials or vaccines, you know, things like Common Pass, for example, that was that was created. So there was there were opportunities that, that just came on the map and it just made sense because how else are you going to do this and still uphold again basic rights of privacy of data, right? And so I think that some of those use cases that are still incredibly important and incredibly relevant bubbled up to the top because people had to deal with all aspects of this pandemic. And that included testing and vaccines. And so suddenly there was a big spotlight on companies that were developing blockchain-based solutions for greater things. And they're still going to continue to do those, such as personal records and all of that. But they kind of hyper-focused in this very interesting, narrow, condensed time frame that oh, suddenly it was about verified credentials. That was going to be the big use case coming out for blockchain and healthcare companies. Yeah. And we've seen so many data breaches in healthcare and EHRs, and we've seen so many examples of companies basically selling our data. Sure, they claim that they de-identify it before they (laughs) give it up, but now we know their process or method of de-identification is not good enough because we can use other sources of data to kind of create a map and find out who that person is and create an even better picture of who they are. And sell things to them, basically. And I I don't see this getting better before it gets worse. I feel like we are still in this idea, this Web 2 version of the world where, you know, companies want to use your data because that's how they're making money. And there's not much incentive to give back the data to people, except for the people themselves who have to say, hey, I want to own my data and I want to monetize it, etc. Are you seeing like trends with, everyday consumers, are you seeing them more interested in owning their data and privacy? Or is that still kind of an education piece? Because it definitely is something we have to educate people on. Yeah. Well, I think when you talk to people and you say, hey, you know, you could own your data and you kind of explain and educate people, then they understand it. But there there isn't a killer app right out there right now. I mean, there are some companies that are working on Uh, this kind of killer app concept and letting people know what the advantages are and what you would gain as a result. But there's a lot of friction. There's a lack of information about healthcare from the average consumer in terms of how it even works and what kind of a system we live in, (laughs) in terms of web two and fee for service and, you know, value-based care. And even any of these very basic concepts, people are just not aware of. So I don't know if it will necessarily come from healthcare, right, in terms of people beginning to understand that their interactions online and their ability to uh, interact and own things. And that's one of the exciting things about NFTs, because with NFTs, people actually own something (laughs) online. And so that concept of, oh, and people kind of ridiculed it at the beginning, right? It's like, oh, somebody says that they own something online, not realizing that that is actually 
pretty transformative and incredible as a concept because no one has been able to do that unless you were in crypto, right? And then you own a digital asset. But actually being able to own something unique to yourself and that could be, I mean, people haven't seen that as like a health record mm -hmm. or, or as, you know, the deed to your house or something, right? Something of significant value that, that you would want to own and have in a digital format. Some people do it with, like Radhika talked about with the vaccine, and, and they can put that into an app and, and show that that's your health record for something specific. And that reduces friction, but you're not necessarily making money off of it. <laughs> you're just, you know, doing something more, e more easily. But Radhika, you have some ideas too. Yeah, right. oh, of course. I, I think I agree with what you're saying, Jordan. And, and Ray, you, you also mentioned something that, that triggered a thought, which was education is very much a necessary piece particularly in early days of a rising technology, right? You know, I was around when the internet was coming about and there was a lot of, you know, information <laughs> superhighway, I think is what people called it at back in the day. It was kind of like a Star Trekian, star whatever view of what that is and what did the internet really mean, right? And so... Early days are, are, are early days. I mean, one of the reasons why we wrote a book as comprehensive as the one we've written is because we wanted to educate. We wanted to raise awareness. And I think that when the mainstream can pick up a book, can read it, can understand it, can relate to it and say, how does this technology affect me as a person individually? What do I gain from it? What, what, what do I gain as a business? What do I gain as an individual consumer? These are things that are very, very important. And so we are still in early days. We still have a lot of education to put out there. There's a reason for these podcasts and video casts that we ourselves are doing. <laughs> because again, it's raising awareness, is discussing what are the implications of a technology. So I think that we are very much in that view that we have to do everything within our power to build ecosystem around it, to build awareness, to be a part of the education piece, and to correct any misinformation of which there is plenty. You know, lots of people misunderstanding, misinterpreting, and putting that out there as something that's very definitive. And so we try our best to correct people, to correct the, the information wherever possible, because it's very important for the correct information to get out there and, and gain visibility. To that point, too, I think, and this is an effort that I've also been a part of, which is I'm a member of the Select Task Force advising Governor Newsom and California State Legislature. It's the blockchain working group here in California. And why did 21 of us get selected to be a part of this task force? Again, to, with the idea that we had to educate state legislature and the governor on the implications and applications of this blockchain web three. What does that mean for a state that has nearly 40 million residents? And so to have the governor recently come out with his executive order stating there is a responsible use of Web3 that the state of California is going to pursue to have the governor recognize that there's economic growth possible because of this technology, to have the governor state that there is a need for appropriate consumer protection because, as with any government, they have to protect the residents of the state. So consumer protection is absolutely important. That's a big step forward in and of itself. And so whether you're talking healthcare, whether you're talking fintech, whether you're talking supply chain logistics, any of those areas, whether you're talking GovTech, you have to look at what the 
technology can do for you. So we're very much in those early days of, of education and building awareness, the right awareness and the right information to be distributed. But I think that the opportunities is, is what people like us are, are talking about. What can we achieve? And, and yeah, I mean, I think we've, through the, through the course of the pandemic, we've, in some ways we've advanced. In other days, we've kind of hit pause and refocused our efforts on other things. But I think the time now, as we're kind of emerging, hopefully, out of this pandemic, we can all go back to the things that we had been working on. So our project that we kind of put on the back burner, it may come up again, because now is the right time to kind of move forward on something like that. You alluded to cybersecurity and severe issues that healthcare as an industry is suffering in cybersecurity, obviously, because the value of the data is so high higher than any other type of personal data or information is very much a priority. We we are seeing ransomware occurring at an just an exponential pace. And you would think, God, who would do such a terrible thing to hold a hospital at ransom such that the hospital cannot deliver services to its patients or turn patients away is 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 incredibly debilitating and it's a very sad state of affairs but it's a reality and so i think the ability to build at infrastructure level at scale utilizing web3 decentralized technologies and blockchain as an underpinning to help us rise above and be able to build a better future with that that's like a really compelling thing for people like us who are builders Absolutely. And I think that there will be a period of time where the blockchain crypto activities will be focused more on finance, like kind of what's happening now. And of course, there are experiments in healthcare and other sectors as well, but you got to follow the money. People are very focused on where the money is, and that's what makes the world go around, at least right now. Maybe the future data will be our currency, right? And that'll run the world. But I am following Bitcoin as a cryptocurrency. And I was wondering, do you think that Bitcoin and maybe Ethereum are necessary to be successful for Web3 to be successful? Well, I mean, I think they help. And obviously, they raise awareness. And the crypto community has been very passionate about, in some cases, the ethos. In some cases, it's kind of not the ethos <laughs> of what Web3 is about in terms of democratization and openness and innovation and transparency and a lot of the things that that web3 in our minds stands for and and why we get excited about web3 and this kind of extreme transparency that you can get is both a positive and a negative right from a healthcare and a hipaa and type of situation but there are different technologies that you can use so that the right people and especially if we have ownership of the data and it's a self-sovereign type of a um, a situation that we control who can access and how much of our data they can access. If you set it up in the right way, which it isn't set up <laughs> currently, and it's very far away from there, then you can see how you could generate and transform the industry and make it more personalized and put the patient at the center rather than on the periphery. And a lot of the very large significant problems that the healthcare industry has could be solved. But there are a lot of players that are tied to the existing system and being able to move them off of it 
is quite a task. So that's why what I was saying earlier, there's going to be other trends. Mm -hmm. And I think Ethereum specifically, because of all the technologies that will come out of it, because people build on it as a platform. Bitcoin less so, but it's a brand, right, that people see, but it's not a platform per se. Right. I mean, people do try to build on it, but the community, the Bitcoin community, isn't that supportive (laughs) of building on the Bitcoin platform. They like the way it is, and that's good enough. But the Ethereum community is about building, right? Biddle, right? It's about building things. And that is where DeFi and you have NFTs and, and a lot of the metaverse infrastructure that that exists is built on that platform. So I think. Yes, they're they're important, but they're not sufficient. I'll, I'll I'll agree with you on that, but I, I think also I see this in a slightly different viewpoint as well, which is, you know, killer apps are really important. I think Bitcoin has been a killer app from that perspective, raising I think excitement, energy, motivation, drive around a new way of doing things. I don't. I, I do agree with you, Jordan, that it's not going to be the thing that you build on. And I think Ethereum is, is better. And I think that one of the things that I am looking at is the next stage of Ethereum. I'm looking at sustainability as a huge opportunity. Bitcoin isn't built for that. And I, when I look at all of the things that are necessary for a better planet, we do need to think about sustainability. We do need to prioritize it. And so we cannot be wasteful in the way we build things. And so I'm looking at the next generation of the proof of stake capabilities of Ethereum and how we're going to be able to build on that more sustainably is going to be incredibly important to prioritize. So I think in the initial stages, Bitcoin, the way it was, it was, it, it was great. It has been great for what it is, but it's not going to be the thing that's going to drive massive adoption and scale in the right way, as far as I can tell. And so sustainable blockchain is really going to have to be prioritized. We cannot waste anymore. I mean, we were just talking earlier before we started the podcast on rising temperatures. We're sitting here in May, looking at 95 degree Fahrenheit weather weather here in the Bay Area, which never has happened or, or hasn't happened like this. And so we have to think about these things. This is an everyday life. How do we make life better and more sustainable? So for me, whether it's Bitcoin or Ethereum or anything else, I'm going to evaluate it and judge it from those filters as well, saying we cannot afford to build on something that is unsustainable. So I'm actually, from that point point of view, looking forward to the next phase of Ethereum. I think the merge is happening this year so i'm pretty confident it's been pushed back a few years and okay. you know the last we heard is you know there's august maybe maybe october That's a bit um, maybe said. maybe it goes yeah maybe it goes into early next year but it's part of the solution we really see a hybrid future hybrid. where you have a combination of permissioned and permissionless technologies mm-hmm. that are working together because businesses operate differently from people and the infrastructure for a business is more aligned with a permissioned infrastructure you could have but the the interaction with people is much better on a permissionless kind of an infrastructure not so much a permission having wallets having dApps, these types of things, which you get in the permissionless systems and aren't as easy to construct and use, 
in a permissioned ecosystem are the ways that people are going to engage. You can't just have it as a B2B platform because if it's only a B2B platform, then the majority of people aren't using it, right? It's just, you know, people within businesses. So, so it, it has to have a hybridization where it becomes an infrastructure that meets everybody's needs, but it also has to be very easy to deploy. You know, permission systems by and large are very difficult to deploy because you have to create the blockchain network from scratch. The permissionless systems, the blockchain network is there for you. You don't have to build it. You just have to use it. But that means it's not necessarily customized for what you need. And it might be very difficult to make it do what you want. You know, if you merge them uh, in, in some way, not necessarily in, in an integrated way where they're the same platform, but maybe loosely structured so that they both can be the way they are and they don't have to go through tremendous effort in order to work together. That is really what we see as the future for how these applications will be useful to everyone. And that's starting to happen, but it also depends very heavily on identity, right? And so there, what we talk about in our book is really three phases. We have the Internet of trust, which is happening in terms of blockchains becoming foundational, the Internet of value, right, which is where you get NFTs and you have everything that has value, crypto, etc. That, but it can be IP, it can be deeds of trust, it can be marriage certificates, it can be anything, right, becomes something that can be transferred digitally. And it could also be digital twins, et cetera. But there's, that whole thing is happening. And then next you have identity, right? And so we're going through the foundational structures that need to be in place and they don't exist yet, right? They're, they're not there yet. So building on any one of these, we see that the foundational infrastructures aren't even there yet <laughs> to build the future that we want. We project that they probably will be around by like 2025 in the early the earliest stages. And then you actually have the tool sets so that you can build out for healthcare, you can build out for finance, you can build out for all the different industries. But there's a lot of infrastructure that has to be built first. Well, that, that's, that's true of any technology again, right? I mean, again, analogizing with the internet, I mean, don't we all remember with bog modems and all of this? And it was terrible experience, right? But all of that infrastructure had to be built. So it's kind of like people started operating even while the infrastructure was being built and rebuilt and updated, etc. And this is the same thing here. Will it really take off to the level we want? We all see it from a vision standpoint. It will. But Will it happen this year? Probably not, right? So, I mean, it, it, there's a course of development time of incremental and additive development that, that starts accumulating and aggregating. And then once you get to a critical mass on basic underlying infrastructure that is capable of delivering at scale what you need to deliver then we can really start experiencing the excitement of what's to come. But that, again, very much true of any technology as it takes foothold. There is a period of that development, which even as it's being adopted, that things are being updated, the infrastructure has to be built, it's nascent, all of that stuff. It's true of any ad adoption of any new technology. So I think the a lot of us that are in this space 
we all drink from that Kool-Aid. We know what it feels like, tastes like. We can actually taste it. It doesn't yet exist, but we all kind of have the feel for what it feels like. And we're all very much anticipating what we can do once it's fully ready. But it's going to take time and it's going to take a lot of really great innovative companies to think through foundationally what some of these things mean to say, oh, and we're going to be able to share medical records on a blockchain-based platform. That sounds like manna from heaven. How are we going to build that, right? I mean, we've got to get there and we're going to be building that. So I think exciting companies that are doing really exciting things for healthcare, for example, but to do that at scale will take a little bit of time. Welcome to the Health Unchained News Corner. There's been a major shift in the electronic medical record space. Oracle has finalized its acquisition of a major EMR company called Cerner for a whopping $28.3 billion. Cerner was founded in 1979, went public in 1986, and has developed numerous technology products and services over 43 years in operation. The intent to acquire Cerner was announced by Oracle towards the end of 2021, and since then, the companies have completed the necessary federal antitrust review by the Federal Trade Commission and the Justice Department. Learns Oracle has its work cut out for it as it learns the complexities of operating in a competitive healthcare market. Mike Cecilia, Oracle's Executive Vice President of Industries, said, In a statement about the merger's approval, Oracle's autonomous database, Apex low-code development tools, and voice-enabled user interface enable us to rapidly modernize Cerner's systems and move them to our next-generation cloud. This can be done very quickly because Cerner's largest business and most important clinical system already runs on the Oracle database, he said. Quote, no change required there. What will change is the user interface. We will make Cerner systems much easier to learn and use by making hands-free voice technology the primary interface to Cerner's clinical systems. There was no mention of using blockchain, NFTs, or Web3 technologies in their tech stack. I wonder when or even if hospitals and clinics that are using Cerner will be affected by the acquisition. I'm not convinced that making hands-free voice technology the primary interface for clinicians is the best approach to improving the overall clinical experience. I hope this consolidation is a net positive for patients and doctors, not just a way for Oracle to take a piece of the healthcare market. Check the show notes for a link with more information about the deal. And now, let's get back to our conversation with Jordan Woods and Redhika Iyengar. Excellent points, both of you. I actually had three questions I wanted to ask you, but you answered the, f- the <laughs> first two already. The first was, will enterprises be using hybrid or private DLTs in the near future? And you kind of mentioned how it's going to be a half hybrid, half permission and permissionless, depending on the use case. And then the other question was, when can we expect the working data economy emerge? And I, I got a sense that it'll emerge after the infrastructure is built sometime around 2025, let's just say. Um, is that... Are those answers okay with, with you guys? Yeah, I mean, it's yeah. kind of the start of it will be 2025. Because, it's probably yeah. going to be. I mean, if you look at Web 2, it's like 20 years. You oh, know, yeah. To kind of get to where we We didn't get now. here yeah. overnight. <laughs> yeah. So, my, third question, my third question was, what do you tend to disagree on when it comes to the future of enter- enterprise uh, blockchain, both of you? 
I don't know. We we don't disagree very much. We think through very similarly on things, uh, despite the fact that we come from very different backgrounds. But our critical thinking processes are quite similar in that sense. And I think the the work that we did on the book and the kind of work that we're involved in speaks to that that thinking through on things in in similar ways. But I do think that we do have opinions, of course, on how enterprise is going to adopt these at various timelines. And I don't know that we disagree on those things, but we do discuss that quite avidly. I I think that what's exciting about, I'll, I'll switch it up a bit in terms of what exciting things can happen within the enterprise using things like NFTs in the metaverse. I mean, Jordan, you put out your video cast and now we're jointly co-hosting that and we're discussing these very same topics saying there are new business models that are coming about that allow enterprises to use a technology in new ways to develop customer experience, loyalty and branding, engagement with customers. That's the holy grail. So there's a lot of different things that can be accomplished using these mechanisms. And you're going to see, we're already seeing that. We're actually, we're seeing a lot more on the luxury brands that are doing things with this because they understand the value of customer engagement that then leads to retention and loyalty and so on. And, and that connection, individual connection with every customer is very much the holy grail of any brand. So I think a lot of those kinds of experiences and different ways of engaging with the customer are hugely possible. There are caveats. I'll say I'll make the plug again for DEI being such a big focus, but we don't want to remake things in the metaverse with the same foibles in real life. So we gotta do better. And and I think that's something I I don't know if it's so much disagreement, it's just different points of view. Because I think when I was thinking about the metaverse back 20 years and thinking, I wasn't thinking about it from the point of view of necessarily safety or or Mm -hmm. ethics, right? Because you're coming from a gaming background. We're going into these spaces in order to fight. <laughs> and it's literally <laughs> what you're doing. You're fighting with everybody around you. There's there's a group as a party that you're know, not fighting. You're supposed to cooperate. But there's a lot of kind of aggression and, and these types of things. I think something when I was speaking with Radhika about it, especially because my vision 20 years ago and, and what the metaverse is coming into is it's not so much a place to fight. It's a place to socialize. It's a place to shop. It's a place to just kind of enjoy being in other people's company and maybe seeing a movie or doing a car race or something, right? You're just doing things in the real world in the metaverse, or you're going to a different planet or something. But what I became very sensitized to in speaking with Radhika and and other women who are going into the metaverse is that it's not considered a safe place, right? It's considered maybe a place that, that isn't fun, right? It's, it can be a place that's considered dangerous. And those were never pictures that I necessarily thought about the metaverse. I mean, of course, if it was, if it was like a game, it was dangerous because you're having to fight monsters and stuff. But, <laughs> but it wasn't from the point of view of your personal safety, right? Mm-hmm. It, like you were going to be endangering yourself by being in this place in the real world, right? Which is kind of more like in in Snow Crash. Like if you go back to Snow Crash, it's really this kind of blurring between the real world and the digital world, which you also see in Matrix, right? This thing that if you die in the in the virtual world, you also die in the physical world. And that's carried through in a lot of science fiction. But there's not necessarily the sense that you're 
it's like not necessarily life and death, but it's more of a safety issue and there's ethical issues. So yeah. I think those are things that I became very sensitized to. And we've talked about that. And I'd say maybe that's kind of a disagreement that we had, but I've been educated because <laughs> I didn't think it was, I didn't think it was something that was possible in the way she was talking about. It. But then in understanding her point of view, I was like, oh, okay, we need so systems the- to, to protect people. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up our conversations, which we do engage in many times. My attitude is this. In real life, we work on things to create better environments, better communities. As we go about building something virtually, digitally, we have an even higher standard of responsibility to ensure that what we are actually creating is something that is accessible to all in the best way. So you don't want to be a woman or a woman of a person of color inflicted with the same kinds of negativity, egregiousness that happens every day in real life. So we have an opportunity to build something in a better way, but that also means that the people building whatever we're building also have to be diverse and inclusive. So this is again coming back to the point that When you build anything, and this is one of the driving factors for me, when I'm building things, I'm thinking about things that affect me, things that affect people like me, and how can we make it better for all? Uh, That means that the people, the builders, have to also be diverse and inclusive because if you don't have a diverse and inclusive team, you don't think about these things. It's not that you don't want to think about it. Right, you just don't. don't think about it. So according to your point, your your idea of a virtual world, well, you're just going to take the in real life and you're going to move it into a virtual world. Lovely, beautiful, done, right? Not so fast, not so easy, right? Right. You start thinking about it from a different lens. Right. You have to be aware and sensitized to the needs of many different people. Well, I think also if you're looking at healthcare, I mean, you're dealing with people and they could be in a naked state. Right. And you're actually getting information about them, right, at a very detailed level, especially if you're dealing with digital twins. Right. And so you're starting to see like all of the internals and all of the information, and you're getting access to all of that data. You know, you can have scams that can happen. You can have people. You don't want it in the wrong hands. Yeah. You don't want it in the wrong hands. Right. And so you need. Very high level. If you look at the metaverse, there's like no security infrastructure of any kind oh, yeah. that I've seen. This is again another touches upon another nerve, which is Web two was largely about putting things out there and sharing in communities, and security and privacy was definitely not by design. Mm-hmm. So I think that what's possible with Web three and blockchain based systems is Web three is is that privacy and security can be by design. It's not a footnote. It's not bolted on after the fact and saying, oh, geez, we really goofed. We didn't think about that at all. You know, and that's not very much. That's not true at all. In fact, most people on the Web3 side are deeply concerned about privacy. They may not be all looking at security, but that's the other side of it, too. So from the crypto side, I would say that privacy and security are very Yes, they're, they're very, very important, yes. but but not in the way that we're talking about. Not in the way here, we're talking about. Right? So I think mean, there are implications of that. And that's yeah. what we're talking about is implications of privacy and security from a space that is open, accessible, truly open and accessible and free for all is the utopian view. But it is something that we can create because we are absolutely 
in the process of creating it. So shouldn't we be more aware and conscious about the way we're doing it? And, and that's why, again, going back to the timeline, I think this 2025, because a lot of this has to do, if you look at now this sense of Web3 that everybody is anonymous or pseudonymous, right? Mm-hmm. That can be protective, but it can also lead to a lot of rug pulls, scams, all kinds of things, right? That it, it, it goes both ways, that people are being protected, but other people aren't being protected, right? Because they don't even know who they're working with. And that's kind of the idea in a permissionless KYC AML type of an environment where you do, or if you had decentralized ID, right? So these are types of things that in social media and in a lot of the issues in terms of fake news, et cetera, who's putting that out? What is the source? A lot of the fundamental problems that we see in the Web2 world are where you don't really have a good understanding of who's saying what, if the information is accurate. And again, if you bring that anonymity into a Web3 space where you're supposed to have extreme transparency, but but you don't get that because you don't know where the information or who's disseminating it or why you even have it. But once you are able to integrate some level of identity, right, now you have, and, and that identity can be done in a protected way, right? It's not necessarily open to all, but it's something where uh, people can check and, and you can verify, right, the source. And there's, you know, different approaches using zero-knowledge proofs. And, you know, we're not here to talk about all the different <laughs> details, but there are technologies that have been developed for the Web3 ecosystem to protect privacy, to protect confidentiality, and at the same time to enable anonymity, right, and, you know, in a broader sphere. But you still have access to an audit trail and and the ability to do some level of verification on what is being said and who's saying what. So I think many of these tools have to come to bear. And if you can now bring these in, you can gain... Web2 has created like a lack of accountability on a global scale. And, and we're kind of all suffering the consequences of this through fake news. We saw all the things that happened in the pandemic, which on the healthcare side were very negative, right? Mm -hmm. In terms of all the valiant efforts that were done in the healthcare sector, and then were turned into conspiracy theories and people didn't want to get vaccinated, et cetera, et cetera. So I think there's an enormous amount of ability for Web3 to help if it's done in the right way, and, and it's not there yet. Again, it's missing all the fundamental parts of the infrastructure to do what is needed to tamp down fake news, to ensure that accurate information, not just free speech, but like speech that is uh, scientifically accurate or factually accurate, and being able to not have a centralized party say that it's accurate, but it's a decentralized approach to achieving accuracy using the blockchain and the crowd, etc. And so there's there's ways to do these things that, that are very much needed at scale, but the technologies have not been completed. They're not scalable. It's People important. don't even know how to deploy them. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the things are, that are necessary, but, but we see that within 10 years, These things can be possible and can point to if society actually wants them. (laughs) That's the other thing. Does society actually want these better technologies than what we have today? 
Right. And, and that's going to be um, an interesting conversation, especially when government is involved, because with yeah. identity, you know, government wants to usually control your identity in, in many ways, or at least be aware, or have you on file, basically. I think that, you know, from the government side, I would just say it's not so much control, but it mm. is about compliance. Mm. So I think there is a distinction. Every government wants compliance. And so the balance is not just about compliance. We have to uphold privacy in the process, just as important as the compliance part. And yes, to since we were talking about it, it has to be done securely. So I think that to have governments like the state of California and the size of the economy that we are looking at this, and it's just because the governor has come out with his executive order doesn't mean that it's ready today to do anything with it. It's a process. But we are on the on-ramp. The first step in that process is having the leaders in government recognize that this is a technology that they do want to be looking at implementing, utilizing for the state of California. That's huge, right? And so with any luck, other states and the nation and other countries will be looking to that roadmap too and saying, how is this going to happen? And so I think, again, this responsible use of technology I think is a very key phrase. You want to do it with the right protections and safeguards for privacy, for identity. Uh, you want to do it to safeguard truth of information. Verification is really important. So I mean, all of these things that are being developed, I think, and particularly in healthcare, uh, we absolutely need all of that to be built. Does it exist yet? No, not yet. But lots of really great people working on stuff that hopefully will make it happen in the next five to 10 years. Yes. And I think, like you said, Radhika, it's, it's in progress. I want to thank you both for this excellent and very insightful conversation. I think our audience will learn a lot. We talked about investments in healthcare and the blockchain ecosystem, as well as data security. We talked about some of the different visions that, and possibilities that can happen with Web3. And we talked about your book as well, which is Enterprise Blockchain Has Arrived. Is there? And I also want to give a shout out actually to your new podcast or your new uh, YouTube channel, the future of business. So congrats on starting that. It's Thank you. Love seeing that kind of thing. Is there anything else you want to leave the audience with before we end? I would just say that there is the potential with Web3 Tech to build a better world, yes. right? And I don't think that we have that previously. Mm -hmm. I think you can clearly see with, with a technology that's based on a verifiable truth and you know, has the, the mechanisms for giving people ownership of their data and things online. These are really fundamental things that have been missing for the last 20 plus years with the web. And so there is a path that we can take. It's going to take time, just like, you know, what has happened with Web2 to actually make and deploy these technologies in the right way. But it has to be done in a thoughtful way and not just in a way that's about maximizing money. Because if you just do it without taking into account policy and the people and who's being impacted, then you just reproduce all the problems that we have today. So I think you have to be a lot more thoughtful. But the good thing is, is we finally do have the tools to be more thoughtful. And so I think that's exciting. <laughs> and so those are the types of companies that, that we're interested in being part of and, and, and promoting. Yeah, I'll second that. And I'll just say, you know, for me using technology to be purposeful and impactful is something that I'm very passionate about. And I love partnering and working with 
other founders and companies who also view that opportunity in this technology, Web3, like Jordan was saying, has the capacity to deliver that. So people who are aligned on that mission, mission-driven NFTs, mission-driven metaverse, mission-driven Web3 is something I'm very passionately waiting to see more of. Thank you both very much again. And uh, I share your passion and thanks for being advocates of the industry. Until next time. Thank you. Hey, all you cyberpunk health warriors and nimble digital disruptors. Check out healthunchained.org and remember to subscribe to Health Unchained on Stitcher, SoundCloud, Google Play, and iTunes. Join the Health Unchained community on our Telegram group, t.me slash healthunchained. If you enjoyed this episode, tell your friends, your bosses, your teams, your students to listen and subscribe. Thank you.